Would you uh, stand with me and let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer to just thank Him for our many blessings. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. And uh, it's been amazing just to see the blessings that you're pouring down upon us as a church family. Lord, you are demonstrating visibly your blessing to us by uh, just the heritage of these children. Uh, I know each of these families uh, just... Uh, count them so near and dear. And I know that so many in this church who are our extended family consider these children like their own, their own grandkids, as if they're their own aunts and uncles, big brothers and big sisters. And so, God, we just thank you uh, that whether we have kids of our own or whether we have adopted ones here at Coast, that you are giving all of us the opportunity to raise up the next generation. Lord, help us to do a good job. These vows that we've made, Lord, we do take seriously. And now as we explore them, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless our study, bless our consideration of these vows, of what we've done today, and of how they are rooted in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, there's a reason that we ask uh, the families uh, who dedicate their children. There's a reason we ask them uh, how these little ones are already bringing them joy. It's because that's what children do. They bring joy. Babies bring joy. Little kids bring joy. And uh, can, it just doesn't stop with babies. As they continue to get older, they continue to remind us of what's truly important in life. And one of the things I love most about kids is how their little minds work. As children begin to grow and to learn they often come up with some of the, the funniest things uh, as they grow and process this life. Uh, think of Melanie, age five, who asked her granny how old she was. And granny replied that she was so old she couldn't even count anymore. And Melanie said, well, if you don't remember, all you have to do is look in the back of your panties and you'll find the answer. Mine says five to six. Or there, was, or there was Brendan, age four. He had an earache and he wanted some Tylenol. And he tried in vain to unscrew the Tylenol bottle, but he could not do it. In frustration, he turned to his mom and, and said, why can't I do this? And she explained to him that it was a child-proof cap that cannot be opened by children. And Brendan thought about it a moment and he turned to his mom and said, how does it know it's me? Then there was Laura, age six, who attended a wedding for the first time, and she whispered to her mom, why does the bride wear white? Her mom replied, because white is the color of happiness, and today is a happy day. The child thought about it a moment and said, then why does the groom wear black? <laughs> I toyed with going with this one. I was juggling on this one, but I'm going to go for it. There was Jack, age three. He was watching his mom as she was feeding his new baby sister. And after a while, he turned to mom and said, Mom, why have you got two? Is one for hot and one for cold milk? <laughs> Can I get away with that? All right. All right, just a few more. How about in church? A Sunday school teacher was discussing the Ten Commandments with five and six-year-olds. After explaining... The commandment to honor thy father and mother, 
She asked, the teacher did, to the students, is there another commandment that teaches us how to treat our brothers and sisters? And without missing a beat, a little boy raised his hand and said, thou shalt not kill. (laughs) After church, three boys were bragging about their fathers. The first boy said, my dad writes for the newspaper. He gets $100 per article. The second boy said, oh yeah, well my dad writes books. They give him $1,000 plus royalties. And the third boy, the pastor's kid, said, I got you both beat. My dad writes sermons for the church. And after it's over, eight finely dressed men get plates to collect all the money. (laughs) And last but not least, just a couple days ago, true story. My son Bennett turned to Casey and said, Mom, will it always be snowing in heaven? Casey asked Bennett, why do you think it's going to be snowing in heaven? Bennett replied, because Christmas is Jesus' birthday, and it snows at Christmas time, and when we're in heaven, it will always be Jesus' birthday. (laughs) My wife probably cried at that, too. (laughs) We love our kids, and even those who don't have children of our own, or maybe children that are far grown now, we are still aunts and uncles, adopted grandparents, big brothers, big sisters. We all have a responsibility to these kids, every single one of us. Why do we make vows like we do today? Why do we dedicate our children to the Lord? Put simply, because the Bible urges us to dedicate our children to God, to make vows. There are There is a biblical basis for what we've done. And these parents who have made these vows know that. Such parental vows are alluded to in Proverbs 31 verse 2 on your outline, where the King Lemuel at the end of Proverbs 31 speculates. He says, what are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? He's probably speaking generically of his kingdom, but in particular, he's making mention of the fact that he's made vows. He's made promises to his children, to those under his control, his purview. He's made vows to them. And we know also that child dedication is rooted in Scripture. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, you'll read the story of Hannah, who was unable to get pregnant. Uh... I've heard, I know of so many instances of of women and couples who have gone through that, that experience. And here Hannah is praying and praying and beseeching the Lord for a child. And she makes God a vow as she waits for a child to be conceived. Verse 11 of chapter 1, 1 Samuel. And then Hannah made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed... Look on the affliction of your maidservant, and if you'll remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. I'll give him to the Lord if you'd bless me with a child. She makes mention of the fact that that no razor would come to his head. Uh, That's... With respect, if you look back at number six, we won't turn there now, but it's called the vow of the Nazarite. It was a particular subgroup of people that were set aside, who devoted themselves to particular focused ministry 
for the service of the Lord. In essence, Hannah was promising that if God were to grant her request for a child, and she vowed to give that child back to him, to be used completely for his service. The rationale behind such great vows should sound familiar to you. For they are, in fact, the same vows we asked our parents to make this day. The first vow, do you recognize that you and your child belong to the Lord and that God is to be the central focus of your family's life? The second vow, do you desire to dedicate your child to the Lord for his use, unhindered by any personal ambitions you may have for your child? And on and on. Each of these five vows that we asked our parents to make are deeply rooted in God's Word. And today I'd like us to consider briefly the scriptural basis of these vows. And as we consider them, as we consider how the the vows that God has called us to make for our children, let us remember that these are not just vows for the immediate families that stood on this stage. These are vows for grandparents. These are vows for aunts and for uncles. These are vows for big brothers and big sisters. These are vows for all of us who serve and take responsibility, as we all do, for the children here at Coast. So what about the first vow? Do you recognize that you and your child belong to the Lord and that God is to be the central focus of your family's life? You know, in this vow is intrinsic the notion that everything belongs to God. Everything. Nothing is outside His control. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. It goes on to say in Psalm 127 that children are a heritage. Children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, the psalmist writes. And if you were to look at that 1 Corinthians passage that I made mention of there, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul speaks on and on about how our bodies, our bodies are, are temples of the Holy Spirit. That we're, we're, we were bought at a price, Paul writes. We're not, your, we're, not our, we're not our own person. We're God's. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our very body houses the Holy Spirit of God. We are not our own, and neither are our children. Amelia, Jane, and all of the babies that were up here today, they're God's. They're not ours. These babies, these children, they're God's. And we would do well to recognize that. And that leads us to a second vow. Do you desire, therefore, to dedicate your child to the Lord for His use? unhindered by any personal ambitions you may have for your child. Intrinsic here is the concept that, Lord, use my child as you see fit. Again, in 1 Samuel 1, Hannah said, Lord, I will give him to you all the days of his life. I'll have him take the vow of the Nazarite. As in number six, I will consecrate him to you. He will be yours. Do with him as you will. Upon his birth, Hannah gave her son Samuel to the Lord. She was not deterred by personal ambitions for her son. She made a vow, and she kept that vow. 
And yet today, parents are often consumed, consumed with personal ambitions for their children, be it educational ambitions, athletic ambitions, artistic ambitions, or what have you. Now, on the one hand, it's fine. It's fine. I, I love baseball. I hope Bennett plays baseball one day. But what I'm not doing is putting my stake in the ground and saying, Bennett, you must play baseball. That I won't do. That's the difference between having maybe a, a, a hope as a father and having a selfish ambition. You see, ambition in Greek is the Greek word there, epitheia. And it's interesting about this Greek word, epitheia. It is always preceded by the word self, as in selfish, as in self-centered as in self-seeking. Every time you see epitheia in Greek in the New Testament, it is all, the word ambition, it always is preceded by the word self, or some variation of it. Usually selfish ambition. Let nothing be done out of selfish ambition, Paul writes in Philippians 2. So instead of mapping out your child's future, be it their education or their athletics, or their artistic abilities. Why not map out a prayer routine for them in which you continually go before the Lord and say, Father, whatever you want, that's what I want. Lord, whatever you want her to be, that's what I desire. Whatever you want him to do, God, that's what I want him to do. In 1 John 3, 2, John here is primarily speaking of what we'll be like in heaven with the Lord. But the concept remains true not only of the heavenly realm, but also of this world. He writes, Beloved, now we're children of God, and it's not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when Christ is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Once again, John is primarily looking forward to the heavenlies, but he's also making a statement that's true of this life, and that is that we don't know what God may do with those who are entrusted to Him. Who knows what great heights they might climb to? Who knows, of course, one day on that final day what we will look like, our sanctified self before the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes to take us home to glory. Who knows what we'll look like? And the same is true in this life. If we are to give our children to the Lord and instead of saying, well, my son's going to go to this college, and get this degree, and go into this field of study. I was reading a, 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 a school back from where I'm from, and there was a, a, a school newsletter that I was given. And I was reading on the school newsletter from, from Northern California the list of the graduates and, and where they had gone. And it was fascinating to me uh, just the way the school had arranged it, of course. They had arranged it in such a way as to highlight th those graduates from that, that private institution uh, to, to showcase who was a doctor, who was a lawyer. They, they were showcasing, in their mind, the professions which are very worthy, no doubt. But it was fascinating to me how the other professions uh, that, that, that maybe were of lesser significance were much, much lower down on the list. Or the colleges that the students went to, they'd put the, the greatest universities toward the top and the ones lesser so toward the bottom. How quickly we forget that uh, a lot of accomplished people don't even get out of high school. People like Vincent van Gogh, 
People like uh, Ella Fitzgerald, Julie Andrews, Albert Einstein, Ronald Reagan. I could go on. How many people didn't even finish high school? And yet we have such a resolve. And of course, well-founded. We want our kids to be educated. We want our kids to, to, to be well-versed in the scriptures and in knowledge and in wisdom. But boy, I tell you, it's amazing. We put all this ambition sometimes into our children and we think if they don't meet all these goals, they're not going to make it. You know what? The Lord has higher plans than our plans. I don't know if Bennett and Mallory and Amelia are going to go on to college. I don't know if they're going to go to the mission field. I don't know what profession they're going to go into. But you know what? I don't care. All I care about is that Bennett and Mallory and Amelia love the Lord Jesus Christ. If they love Him, I've done my job. If they love Him, I will trust God for the rest of it. If they have a robust faith in Christ, I will give my ambitions over to Him and say, Lord, you take it from here. Because then I will know that they are in a wise and safe place, focused on kingdom principles. Our job is not to establish lofty ambitions but rather to ground our children in God, in His Word. How do we do that? Vow number three on the back of your outline. Do you promise to teach your child the truth of God's Word, to pray for and with your child, to point them to faith in Jesus Christ? Concept of training here, of submersion in truth. Proverbs 22.6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old... He will not depart from it. It's not a promise, but it's a general principle of truth, this proverb is. It does not mean, and I've, I know it does not mean that, because I've watched families who have raised up their kids best they could in the church with godly influence, godly teaching all around them, and I've seen some of those children still fall away from the faith. Usually just for a time, though. So this is not a promise in Proverbs 22.6, but it's a general rule of truth. That's what the Proverbs are. They're general rules for life. And if you are focused on training that son or daughter in the way he should go, then the chances are that when he is old, he will remain in the faith. Paul speaks of, uh, in Galatians 4, he speaks of wanting Christ to be formed in his children, formed in uh, those to whom he ministers. I was talking with a pastor uh, earlier in the week, actually. I was prompted by a, a wonderful uh, a brief speech up in uh, Santa Ana at a Presbyterian church. I heard John Ortberg, a Presbyterian pastor, at, uh, he's up in the Bay Area in Menlo Park. Uh, John Ortberg is a real dynamic speaker, uh, but real grounded, real down-to-earth man. And his topic was uh, on the concept of transformation. Are you being transformed? Are you growing? Are you deepening your faith? And he was talking about the concept of how do we become transformed? How do we grow? And of course, a part of that happens right here. 
A part of it happens right where you're seated right now. A part of it happens in a Bible study or, or in a men's or women's a group that you meet with and study God's Word and pray for one another. That's a component to being transformed into the image of Christ, to being trained up in the faith. But really, when the rubber meets the road, do you know that it really, at the end of the day, transformation happens in everyday life far more than it does in these walls? What do I mean by that? Look on your outline at Deuteronomy 6. Notice what Moses says through the word of the Lord. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And these words, which I command you today, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Real transformation, real training, your, your child's transformation and your own, don't entrust it to the church. Not just the church. Don't entrust it to a pastor or a ministry leader. Don't entrust it to a Bible study or an Awana program. Those are helps. Those will bolster it, no doubt. But at the end of the day, if your training is not in your house while you're seated, when you're walking with your children, when you're lying down with them, when you rise up with them, if training isn't happening then, you're setting your family up to fail. Deuteronomy speaks of training on the way. Wherever you go, some of the most keen opportunities to train my children come in the car. Usually when it's just my wife, as she's driving to school, and it's crazy. You know, and my wife will tell me there are some days where it's crazy in the car, and she'll get flustered, like any mom would. And it'll be a rough morning, and she'll walk out, having dropped the kids off at school, she'll come home just exhausted. But then there are other days where she gets in the car, and it's crazy. And yet my wife finds that way to use the chaos to draw Bennett and Mallory back into a focus on the Lord, into a, a centering on Him. Um, I know a lot of families that have uh, uh, really like rigid bedtimes. You must be in bed at 7 o'clock or at 7.30 or at 8 o'clock. But you know what I find? I find that when I go to, you know, walk in my kids' rooms at night and it's time for bed and I'm laying down in the bed with them and, and at, at the end of the day, I, my temptation is to get out as fast as I can so I can go downstairs and spend time with Casey and watch a movie or just hang out. That's my temptation. But you know, it's funny. My kids don't want too much to do with Daddy throughout the day, but come nighttime at bedtime, Mallory and Bennett want me to lay down they want me to stay. They want me to sit there and talk to them. They want me to, to share. And it's amazing. If I was rigid on bedtime, I would miss out on training opportunities with my kids. And sometimes I do. Sometimes I kiss them goodnight, I pray, and I'm out. And I fail to spend 10 more minutes, 15 more minutes, because it's a precious time right then 
Mallory's heart's ready then. It wasn't ready throughout the rest of the day. Bennett's heart's ready right then. It wasn't ready throughout the rest of the day. But something about that last moment of the day that's precious. On the way, Moses says, through the word of the Lord, as you sit, as you walk, as you lie down, as you rise up, that's when training happens. Not just here. Part of training, with, with training comes also discipline. Number four, do you commit to admonish and lovingly discipline your child that he or she may know what is acceptable and pleasing to the Lord? This is the notion here of, of knowing I need to correct my children when it's appropriate. In Ephesians 6, Paul speaks of children needing to obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And it comes with a promise that it will be well with you, verse 3. And you'll, you'll live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, though, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Do you know that the obedience of children is a key qualification for church leadership? We take that very seriously as we bring in uh, staff, as we bring in elders, key leaders of the church. One of the key qualifications, when you look at 1 Timothy and you look at Titus, is that the children be submissive, not insubordinate, but be obedient. About ten times, too, in the book of Proverbs, it speaks of the rod of correction, the rod of correction that is to be used to discipline children. Now, some of you hear the word discipline and you react very strongly. For you know, you know what it's like to be disciplined in your growing up days. In some cases, you know what it's like to be disciplined harshly and with wrath. If statistics are correct, 15%, 15% of the people in this room have experienced some kind of physical abuse, often in terms of physical discipline, often at the hands of fathers, which may be why Paul says in verse 4, Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. He singles out dads there, which I think is especially noteworthy. But I know moms are not immune to this at all. In fact, the statistics show it's, it's pretty equal when it comes to the physical abuse of children in the home, that both men and women are perpetrators of it. And to those of you who have been physically harmed by a parent or a family member, we stand beside you. We're available to hear your story if you ever wish to tell it and to give you the support that you need if you need it. But let us remember, just because some abuse physical discipline doesn't make physical discipline inherently wrong. If, in fact, if we're being careful with Scripture, we'll notice throughout Proverbs, and I've given you a, a number to look on your own at home, we will notice that the Scriptures bear witness to the fact that parents must discipline their children. And were we to do an exhaustive study of Scripture and develop a whole theology of discipline, we would find that physical discipline is to be included in our parental toolbox. In my home, physical punishment is a last resort, and it is always done last. What do I mean by that? Well, when I say it's a last resort, I mean that it comes after a number of things. 
It comes after a verbal warning, which is common sense. It comes after a timeout where I say, okay, Bennett, I've given you a warning. Now I'm going to put you over here on the stairs and you have to sit down for a while. And with that usually comes the removal of privileges where he can't play with certain toys or, or watch a certain TV show for a time. We try these other methods to get our children's attention. But if those methods fail to bring about obedience in our children, then we turn to physical discipline. And even that is done last. It's done after I first speak with them and make sure they understand what they did and why it's wrong. I want them to recognize what they did and admit to me, yep, that's wrong. I should not have done that. We as parents must be careful to speak to our children before physically disciplining them. The parent that, that spanks their children immediately after bad behavior is a parent that's missing the point. We don't use the rod of correction immediately after bad behavior. Instead, we pull our child aside and we explain to them what they've done and get them to dialogue with us, to admit to us that yes, in fact, that was wrong and that I want to change my ways. And it's then and only then when the rod of correction comes in appropriately. When it's done right, my children, I can tell you from personal experience, when I do it right, my children almost invariably respond with a soft heart and ready to do better. But when I do it wrong, and I've done it wrong many times, where Bennett or Mallory's done something wrong and I've swatted them way too fast, out of wrath, out of anger, inevitably it deters the transformation of the child. But when it's done right, they respond with a soft heart. When it's done right, it reestablishes a child's boundary markers. It actually gives them security, knowing their place in the home, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. They know the rules. They know what's expected of them. And that gives the home peace. The rod of discipline is not just something fearful. It's something that actually gives comfort. It speaks of this comfort in a very well-known psalm, Psalm 23. You know it, and I, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You ever pay attention to that? In the light of how rod is used in Proverbs? I can tell you it doesn't mean a gentle nudge on the sheep. It means the rod. As in, a shepherd uses a rod to prod his sheep back. Get back in line. And what does he say of the rod? He says it actually comforts the sheep. You know why? Because it brings them back in the fold. It gives them the boundaries. It keeps them safe. It keeps them secure. It's temporally unpleasant. But on the long term, it keeps the child on the safe path.
Your rod and your staff comfort me. When done right. When done in love. A fifth and final vow. Do you vow to raise your child to exemplify the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ? This is the idea that I will model and I will instill in my children Christ-like qualities. I will say, as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I will not say, do as I say, not as I do. That doesn't work. How many parents fail at that? We all do. Sometimes, if we were looking at our parental philosophy or, or how it worked out throughout that day, it could easily be summed up as, do as I say, not as I do. But that does not work. Instead, we need to exemplify the fruit of the Spirit to our children. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Proverbs 27, the righteous man walks in his integrity, and his children are blessed after him. And finally, the vow of the congregation is also rooted in God's word. Do you, the people of the church, do you promise to love, to support, to encourage, and to pray for these families as they raise their children in the Lord? Will you turn to Psalm 78 as we close out our uh, time in God's word? Turn to Psalm 78, and I want to read here. This is a a, a psalm of, of corporate worship. A contemplation of Asaph, a a musical director in in ancient Israeli kingdom times. And and Asaph speaks of this corporate act of worship. And notice his emphasis upon the whole family of God. Verse 1 to 7, Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I'll open my mouth in a parable. I'll utter dark sayings of old, which we've heard and known, and our fathers have told us. Verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, His strength, His wonderful works that He's done. For He established a testimony in Jacob. And appointed a law in Israel, he commanded our, which he commanded our fathers that they should make their, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they might arise and declare them to their children, that they might might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. This is the responsibility of the whole corporate body. We could speak of many other passages, uh, later part of Timothy and Thessalonians, where it speaks of old men and, and older women supporting and exhorting and encouraging the younger men and the younger women, reminding them to be good fathers and good mothers, showing them the path forward to the grandparents here today and those who have gone down life a little bit longer than the rest of us. You have a huge role a huge role to play. Please help these young families. Insert yourself into their life. Trust me, they want you to. They want help. They want encouragement. We need advice. And we need free child care for crying out loud. So, Kevin, 
I'm going to bring Amelia and Bennett and Mallory over today. You've got your own. But for those who don't, free child care. But, and then to, to those without kids, you have a role. Just because you're single or just because you're, you're a, a young man or a young woman or newly married and no kids, that doesn't mean you have no role to play with these children. You're their aunts. You're their uncles. You're the fun ones. Watch out for these kids. Bless them. And to the families, you've got a huge responsibility. Would you seek guidance for it? Would you go here for that guidance? There's a lot of philosophies of parenting out there. I've read many. Uh, particularly, I'm particularly grieved by those philosophies that, that suppose that discipline is, is for a bygone era. That is wrong. That is wrong. The Bible speaks of godly discipline. Parents of, of children today, go here for your parental philosophy. Uh, seek other families whose children you look upon and say, wow, those, those, those children are doing well. What advice can I get? How can we mutually share our strengths, our weaknesses? No parent is perfect. We all have our strengths and weaknesses, and we can learn from one another and from those who have come before us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> thank you, God. Thank you for our family, our family at Coast. Thank you for our immediate families in our own homes. God, we're, we're blessed. Whether we have children or not, Lord, we also know that we're responsible for these kids. And we pray, God, that you'd help us to be wise, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters. Help us to rally around one another, help one another, encourage one another, spur each other on. God, you, you have given a good blueprint of what it means to raise children in you. You've given us vows, godly vows, that we are making today, that we are renewing today. Lord, help us to meet these vows, to give our children to you, not hold back, but to give them totally to you, unhindered by our own ambitions. Lord, we love you. We can't wait to see what you will do with our children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.